1: Thirty-six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at Shopify.com/work. Shopify.com/work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things.
2: Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at fifty dollars
0: Hello oh, and welcome to Dwell, a Circe Institute podcast for homeschool moms by homeschool moms. I'm Emily Hill, and joining me are Karen Kern and Renee Mathis. Hello, friends. Good afternoon. Hi, Emily. It has just been such a joy to talk about all all mom things with you all, and realizing that motherhood is a journey. It, it truly is a it's a pilgrimage of the soul, and it doesn't begin. Motherhood doesn't begin with the birth of our first child, um, but it it starts way before that. Who we are as mamas is being formed in us from the time we ourselves are young children. And it it keeps going long past the time our own children leave the nest to make their own way in the world, as you ladies can attest to. Um, But the book Hannah Coulter is one of the most beloved books in the classical homeschool mama world and with very good reason. So I read the book Hannah Coulter by Wendell Berry alongside a group of young moms, I don't know, probably about a dozen years ago or so. And the whole group, we all fell in love with this story of faithfulness and loss of growth and love. Um, We all had little ones at the time and I think we we kind of read it cheerily as this memoir of uh, love well lived so last year I decided I should revisit the book and reread it and it was like encountering the story for the very first time which does not mean the book has changed but it did mean I had um years of some hard years and sorrow had touched my life and I found myself in that time grieving, like literally crying, um, and also rejoicing with Hannah as a wife and mother. I really see this is a story that speaks to wives and mothers in every season, even before you have children, even if you are in your teens and you're reading this book, um, there is just something... Um, so connecting about this story. So we are looking forward to reading Hannah Coulter alongside you and discussing it through the lens of motherhood in particular. So this is a heart book for many a mom, and we're going to take a few weeks to make our way through the story. But today we're just gonna jump right in and chat through part one of the book which begins with Hannah's own childhood and her marriage, her first marriage and the birth of her first child. So we have, actually the three of us have had a lot of fun chatting about this book and we're like, we just need to jump in. At some point, you just have to jump in and talk about it. Um, so I thought maybe Karen, for those of um, our listeners who haven't had a chance to read it yet, or maybe it's been a little while, that maybe Karen, who is our um, like best narrator, could uh, give us just a, a short little summary of just the first part of Hannah Culture and then we're gonna chat about it.
3: Yeah, so if you haven't read it, you have to read it because this is the hardiest art book
0: ever. <laughs> it
3: really um, it's really my dearest book. Like right, you just have, so You're book. just have to read it. It's a gift, you have to read it. So in this section, we find out how Hannah comes to be part of the membership, as Wendell Camp calls it. Um finding her place and her people. And so we're first introduced to her in the first pages. Actually, the very, very beginning pages words are actually about Nathan Holder and how um, his stories came to be part of her, their children's lives. And so we know right from the get-go that she is going to be married to Nathan, but in this section, it's about her marriage to Virgil. And we find out that she's born in 1922, um, we find out that she is, her childhood is during the depression. She lives on a farm with her father and her grandmother and her mother dies when she's 12. So her father remarries, um, unfortunately, um, a woman who has two sons. And so she's really, uh, raised up and nurtured by her grandmother and, uh, she goes to high school and when she is finished with high school, um, she says that her, Grandmother took her future in her own hands and takes her into town and finds a place for her at her old friend's home or a family who owns a beautiful rooming home. And so she gets to have some beautiful months or maybe a year at that home being cared for by her. And while she's there, she gets a job working in a lawyer's office. And the lawyer is Wheeler Catlett. And while she's working there, she gets to know Virgil, who she describes as a good and decent, gentle, beloved young man. And they get married in 1941. So she would be about 19 years old when they're married and they're welcomed in by his family and his community. And they live with his parents in their big old farmhouse. And in 1942, he's called to the war. So they really have less than a year together. Um... They're all sad There's long passages about what it's like living together as a community, knowing the sadness that has come upon them, their community, their country, their family. Um, there's a long narrative about Christmas in 1944, and then in 1945, uh, Virgil is declared to be missing, and at that point, he already knows that that his wife, Hannah, is going to have a baby, and then we find out um, she that Margaret is born later in the year. And um, and then we're told that there are three years of missing and grieving him with beautiful sections on grief and the golden threads of love and gratitude. And then at the very end of the section, um, we find out that she, through this whole thing, is being prepared for nature. So that's the whole first section.
0: If I missed anything, jump in. I feel like you should get like an A plus for good narration nice work. Thank you. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> well, I So you said this yourself, Karen, and I had said this, that this is, you said it's the heartiest book, not <laughs> heartiest book. Heartiest, heartiest, heartiest heart heartiest. book for so many people. Um, and I kind of want to maybe, you know, to share why that is. Um, and then I have a specific question for Renee, too, based on some of the things that she loves about mentoring, um really want to get into that. But why like why is this a hard book for so many people? Like why do we like it so much?
3: I'll jump in there. I think it's it's so, so many reasons. One is that Wendell Berry's writing is so beautiful. It's so beautiful that you can't imagine how these passages told in the perspective of a woman are actually written by a man. So there's that. There's the time period that it's told, you know, going from 1922 to 2001. You have that whole period of the 20th century where so much change was taking place. So I, for me, I picture it from um, my grandmother and my my dad, who was born in 1929. So I can imagine all the things that are going on in the communities and in the towns and on the farms and in the cities too. It's it's so believable. Um, and, and then the characters are, he writes such lovely and beloved characters, people from Burley Coulter, who is just um, a hysterical character to somebody who is as lovely as Hannah Coulter and all of the, all of the, um, beautiful relationships that are described. So, so those are all the reasons why this is such a hard book for me. What about you, Renee?
4: Yeah, it's, it's just so beautiful. <laughs> I I have not, I will admit, I have not read J. Crow, and I have not read any of his other fiction yet, except for this one. Um, So, I don't know all the members of the Port William membership yet, um, like I would like to eventually. So, my, my experience with Wendell Berry is mainly through his poetry and through his nonfiction. But I believe he does such a beautiful job of encompassing what he believes and what he communicates in his nonfiction, he puts it into his stories. And I think for a lot of us, it's a lot easier to understand those concepts um, when they're told as a story. So, you know, he writes so beautifully about place and and what it means to be attached to a place and to be a member of a community of people that are rooted in that place. And, um, and then the commitment that it takes to, to, love those people and to live with those people. And not only the commitment to all the people around you, but the people, the commitment to your place to make sure that place flourishes. So when he talks about, you know, his decision, like I'm going to farm, but I'm not going to use tractors. I'm only going to use horses because he has a commitment to treating the land a certain way. Um, you know, whether you agree or disagree with that, the fact is He's, he stands by his words, you know, and that's another great book that he's is written called that? Standing by Words. Um, but he stands by his words and, and he is committed to those and that comes out in his writing. So we have this beautiful picture of what it means to live in a community, to, to build a life with someone else in the midst of all the messy stuff that life and the world throws at us.
0: Well, and he creates a sense of purpose and meaning that we are—I think—we're longing for, but in in an idealistic way for sure. But in a um, in a reality, like you read this and 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 you cry along with Hannah in her suffering, but then as as he talks about the golden thread of love and grief and gratitude, you're like, but there's there's like purpose. It means something. It matters. Um, and a, a connection with another matters. Um, so I was introduced to Wendell Berry through his novels and Hannah Coulter was the first that I read. And then Jaber Crow, um, which actually Renee, there's this quote in Jaber Crow that says something about, um, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm just going to make it up. It's been a long time since I read Jaber Crow. Was he sad that he had, that he had not read that many books. Someone, do you remember this quote? And, um, Karen, and he said, he's not sad that he hadn't read all of the books because now he has the rest of his life to discover them. So when you said you haven't read it yet, I'm like, well, you shouldn't, you should never be sad about what you have not read because now you have the opportunity to read it still. So I think as I'm becoming educated in my adulthood, um, but I then discovered his essays and poetry, and I actually will give him some credit for um, the awakening within me uh, with this affection for place and community. Um, Wendell Berry might be why I live on the edge of a forest and why I started an outdoor nature school, um, but Hannah Coulter is the seventh of Berry's novels, but the first written from the first perspe- person perspective of a woman. And you hear that all the time of, uh, I cannot believe this novel was written by a man. It's always kind of like shocking to a woman. Um, and as we get into the conversation, let's, let's like read some of his quotes of why we think that, um, but I, I, kind of wanted you to jump in here Renee on this of, um, because you are in, in other podcasts, you've talked about mentoring and what that looks like and how important that is. And then in this book in particular, you have these, um, women who take on the role of mothers, in Hannah's life. And, you know, we're going to move on in the conversation when she's a mother herself. Um, mm-hmm. But wh- what is your takeaway from this as you see these other mothers um, in Hannah's life when her own mother dies young? Who are these women and what did they, like, what was their effect on her?
4: Right, because, um, you know, it would be really easy to look at her, her growing up life and, and be very sad for her because she lost her mom, which of course is very tragic. Um, but the way her story unfolds, she had other women who stepped up in her life to to take that place and to to help do the things that a mother would have done for Hannah if her mother had lived. Um, it, it's it's sad in a sense that her dad, for whatever reason, wasn't able to um, perhaps be that strong figure that she needed. And so her grandmother steps in to fill the gap. And um, she kind of I think the grandmother is very wise and she sort of sees how things are playing out with this stepmother who is not going to be the nurturing kind mother figure that Hannah needs. Um, And so grandmother steps in and she kind of sets Hannah on this path of, you know, helping her realize she needs, she needs to learn. She needs to get out on her own. She needs to work. She needs a job. She needs to earn money. um, She needs to get out of the house and there's a quote, it wasn't very long before grandmam saved me any further trouble by making up my mind for me. This was her last gift to me. And so her grandmother gives Hannah this beautiful gift of, of setting her on this road. And, and rather than being a, you know, I don't know, a, a bossy or a domineering kind of an act, it, it's it's shown to us as being a very loving act because she's educating Hannah And Hannah's response is all of a sudden, quote, I could feel myself taking form. I thought, yes, that would be all right. Yes, that is what I want to do. So the grandmother's influence and love is forming Hannah into the person that she's going to be. And and that's what any good mentor-mentee relationship does. It sees that potential in someone else and it helps them along their journey and their path. And as a result, that person is formed into into who they need to be. Um, and that's true, whether it's, you know, mentor relationships. I love I love doing women's ministry in our church. And, you know, God's idea, Titus 2 was God's idea, right? That older women should teach younger women because they have something worth sharing. And, and the younger women need that relationship as well. So, um, I mean, you know, Barry may not know a lot about Titus 2, but he knows a lot about painting this picture of these older women who are helping Hannah. Um, she goes to live with Miss Aura um as she you know leaves the house and and the the picture of miss aura is quote she had a wisdom that spread order and beauty around her for me miss auras was a place of rest what a what a beautiful picture um what a goal to aspire to i mean i would love for people to say my home was orderly and beautiful and restful right um Maybe your home is different. Maybe you you want maybe you want cozy. Maybe you want energetic. Maybe you want colorful. You know, we all have different you know, goals for our house. But that was someone who impressed upon Hannah the the importance of a home and and a beautiful home and and how that can minister to and and um, serve the people that are are living within those walls. Um, and then of course she's going to have her mother in law, um, Mrs. What what's her last name? Uh, oh. Virgil's mother. Feltner. Feltner. Yeah. Margaret, Margaret Feltner. Yeah. Yeah. And and she's going to live with her and, and she kind of helps Hannah along the the mothering lines is because she kind of helps watch her raise little Margaret, um, dispensing little grandmotherly pearls of wisdom along the way. (laughs) It's really beautiful.
0: I know. I love their input on her parenting. It's really, it's just, it's sweet. You know, she's parenting, she's single parenting, but she has this community. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. So this story is told from the perspective of an old woman looking back. Um, And then when you, you read the very last chapter and the very last page, it just, I don't know, we'll get there, but that's, I've probably read it a dozen times more, just, just like just that last, just that last section. And I'm not an old lady, but I'm, I'm closer to being an old lady than I am to being in a young lady anymore. That's the direction I'm headed. So this whole novel is her reflection of her her life and I, I'm curious about that like why why is Barry telling the story as a, as a memoir of an old woman looking back
3: I think it's because he can get inside telling it first person he can get inside her heart and her mind as she is. As she is telling her memories and those really, really important memories. Like, so for example, she gives so much detail about that Christmas dinner in 1944. And of course, I, while I was reading it, I was reading this whole section yesterday. I thought, wow. So in 1944, she's only in her 20s. And she can give that much detail about a Christmas dinner. So I'm in my 60s. Is there any Christmas dinner I could give that much detail about? But I think it shows the significance of the time that they were living in and how everybody knew they were on the cusp of something. And the emotion that was so palatable at that time made such an impression on her that then Wendell Berry can tell the story through her in such a beautiful and poignant way that calls up the emotion in such a way that is more powerful than if he was doing it in the third person. That's why I think I think he was doing that because of the power of the storytelling. I just read um, a book called A Month in the Country, also told from the perspective of an old, an older person looking back on just one month in his 20s. And the memory and the sharpness of the memory is so um, powerful because you know that what he was going through made such an impression that he was able to remember. So she is remembering all these really um, crucial and important and significant moments of her
4: life. Yeah, and, and it's not a spoiler alert, right? Because we know from the beginning of the book she is going to be widowed. And we know that this is not her first, or you know, that, that Virgil is um her first husband, not her. Right. She's he's not a Coulter. she's not Hannah Coulter yet. So, but she's going to have that perspective that she now can look back on and and look at those young that young married couple who are just fresh you know, in love and, and life is ahead of them. And it's, it's a big, beautiful, wonderful thing from the perspective of a, a very much older woman who has seen a lot of life go by. Um, and, and we wouldn't have that perspective and that, and we wouldn't have her ability to compare and to draw those conclusions if, if it was just unfolding as she went along.
0: So this is, uh, I'm going to throw a really, I do, I, I do this all the time in life. I'm going to throw a really deep, hard question out there. Uh-huh. Like just nothing like getting right into the middle of this podcast and be like, well, how about this one? So it says on page 31, when you are old, you can look back and see yourself when you were young. It is almost like looking down from heaven and you see yourself as a young woman, just a big girl, really half awake to the world. You see yourself happy holding in your arms, a good, decent, gentle, beloved young man with the blood keen in his veins, who before long is going to disappear, just disappear into a storm of hate and flying metal and fire, and you don't know it. And, and there's a, another quote in there that says, um, you, were, you were happy because you didn't know what would happen. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, it's just been like running through my mind ever since I read that of here she has this, um, she had a, a we might say a dysfunctional childhood now we might call it that, but hap, she wasn't unhappy. she had a happy childhood. She had her grandmother. she moves into Miss aura's. she meets this boy, she marries him. Um, and this is common in these stories of like that pre-war and then coming into the first and second world war of um actually the book you mentioned Karen a month in the country. it's the same the same like recovering from war and the effect of war. and it just kind of got me thinking of the the beauty and happiness and innocence of um a beautiful childhood and lord willing that's what we're you know offering to our own children and we know we know that we know now that we're older that hard things are coming their way just like hard things came our way and grief and suffering and trials and death and all these things are headed our kids way what is the what is the the mercy and value and goodness of the happy years? Like, what role do those years play with those mentors, with the um, I think the good life? That's a big question. I know.
3: I think they establish they establish um, those things that are going to be required of you in terms of strength and community. And the people around you that are going to hold you up in those really hard times that are going to come. And we're all, we're all going to suffer. And some of us are, have watched our children already suffering and have watched them come through things that have been hard. And we understand that, that as she says in the end of this section, we, we grieve, but it's not the grief that carries us. It's the love and the gratitude and those two things together, the love and the gratitude carry us. And so, when we can be established uh, as she is, as a young woman, it, it kind of provides those, that initial strength that's going to be required. And then you watch yourself grow and you watch yourself be able to endure things we didn't think you could endure when you're young. You just think, oh, that would never happen to me. That would have happened to one of my kids. And it happens to one of your kids. And you realize that you do actually have the strength to walk through it step-by-step step. because because of, of what you've been given in your past because of the people that love you and are in it with you.
4: So that's question. I don't remember what the question was that. <laughs> Karen, you answered it beautifully. Yeah, it was, it was yeah.
0: the, like, what is the goodness of the innocence of those years? Um, you know, even as you look back on old photographs, right, of your kids when they were little bitty, um, I've talked to so many moms who, um, for some people, that's actually hard. It's hard for them to look back at photographs of their kids when they were a little bitty. You're like, those years. Um, but then there's also, um, there's a, there's like a joy of those years. And I just like wrestling through that. Like, what do those, like, what's the goodness of those years of this joy and innocence and um, togetherness and agreeing with you. And I don't, I don't want to read this whole quote now. Cause I kind of like want to save it for the end when he says love is a great room with these doors and thinking those years are building this great room. So it's like build this great room of love that has these doors that go out from it.
4: And it's like, Emily, it's like Wendell Berry says, you know, that, that marriage is a possibility, and that's one of the beautiful things about those young young years. You don't know what's ahead of you, and, and we, we're not meant to know. And in fact, it would probably crush us if we did know some of the things that were coming. So in his mercy, God, you know, doesn't, doesn't give us our whole life all laid out at once. Um, this this particular quote, she says, we were coming together into the presence of something good that was possible in this world, Right. Uh, she says, "I have to see it now as a sad hope because we were able to use up so little of it." So, from her older perspective, she realizes it was it was a it was abbreviated. It wasn't all it could have been, but she says she goes on to say it was no less a beautiful one. Um, so, the, the beauty and the possibility and the love and the joy of of the earlier years when our kids are little and you know life is ahead of you it it it, it is it's beautiful and wonderful. But at the same time, like Karen said we are learning those habits and we're forming, we're forming our families along the lines of um, things that are going to stand us in good stead later on when maybe those hard storms hit, Um, you know, your your foundation has to be strong. And and so those are foundation building years.
0: So one of the the main takeaways from this book for everyone who reads this, um, that I think really actually just sticks with people and, has turned into an actual practice in communities is this idea of the membership. And uh Burley says at one point, all men, all women is brothers. And I love that quote so much, all women is brothers. Um, what is like what is Barry talking about there? Like what, what does it mean that all women is brothers? And what does that look like in this story? We find it. I'll find it right now and read that. He says,
3: um something's going to all women is brothers. Really cold, he used to say, and then look at you with a dead, sober look as if he didn't know why you thought that was funny. But as usual, he was telling the truth or part of it. And so he's talking about that right after um Aura would call her up out of her room. If Aura thought, Miss Aura thought she was sad, it says, if she thought I was sad, shut up in my room. She would come and peck twice with one knuckle on my door. Oh, Hannah, she would say, don't you want to come out and sit a while on the porch? It's a lovely evening. Or, Hannah, come back to the kitchen and let's have coffee or tea if you'd rather. And I think it's because we can read each other so well. And so she would know, Miss Laura would know to it that, well, Hannah's in a room. Hannah's in her room and it's not because she wants to be alone reading a book because she's sad. So I'm going to pull her out. So I think it's that knowledge that, that we have of each other as women when you get to know each other well that you, you know what a dear friend is going through, or you to it, or it's it's just this community, this communication that we
4: have with each other. So oh, see, it's what's what's funny. Right. I saw it a little differently. I saw Miss Aura as more, um, you know, Hannah needs to learn how to get along with people. She needs to learn how to be in society. She needs to learn how to relate to people. So but I, I didn't. See, I didn't see Miss Aura necessarily. Um, oh, Hannah's sad, or maybe Hannah was sad. I totally missed that um but she just like you know i'm i'm gonna get you out of your room I, i'm gonna you need to be with people you need to learn how to how to talk and converse and and get along and so miss or is just so wise she's just such a wise person yeah and, so and maybe that's what Bur, burley recognized you know that, that all when women they're are together, women are forced to be reckoned with yeah that's true too for uh, sure.
0: my uh my husband um always says that uh, it's our hive minds at work. So I have three girls and we're always joking about working on our telepathy. Um, so we're like, Oh, we got, we got to work on that. Um, actually, so even this week with my daughter, Miette, yet, I, I said something to her. And then I just like, I was like, you know, and she totally just like finished my sentence and went, and the boys in my house. we looked, they looked over, they're like, how do you like, how do you do that? And I was mm-hmm. like, I don't know. It's just the skill that God has given women with our hive minds. That we can connect. And honestly, I think that's one of the things that you know we love about this book is there's this understanding of um, not not only of the broad membership, because you see that in this book, too. I mean, this is it's not just the women who are connecting with each other. It's the whole community, which is kind of the beauty of Barry, that it's not it's not sexist either way. There is a great deep understanding of the the role of the feminine in a community, but also the role of the masculine as well, and the need for all of it together. Um, but I feel like I just need to get uh, like bookmarkers or something for Dwell that says all women is brothers.
4: <laughs> oh, that, would great. that would be so good. Oh, that's, see, that's that. our dwell coffee cup. Okay. I am on that. Okay. <laughs> I am on it.
3: I
0: love it. But in that idea of the membership, um, it says when when Virgil goes away to war, um, this becomes the sorrow of the whole country. And that struck me because um, we, we do live in a very uh, um isolated society. And that's a, a huge struggle for people this is why depression is very high. I mean, we feel we're lonely and thinking of in their membership community, when one person goes away, it's not just her husband leaving. It's not just her daughter losing um, the possibility of a father. You're not just one person. So when Virgil goes away, it's the sorrow of the whole country. And like those passages on their grief like the whole families, like the, everyone's grief of this one missing person, Um, like you you hold that. So deep, like, I don't know, you hold their grief so deeply in that. Um, So thoughts on, like thoughts on the membership. What did that, like, what did that stir up in you?
3: I think it stirs up just a gratitude for the community that we have, you know, even the three of us, um, the people that we work with, I'm thinking of my community at church, still with our family, um, our community at Searcy, and um, how, when one member agreed to be all hurt and how two that is, when one member hurts, to be all hurt. and you know, Renee, you were telling us before we started reporting that your community in Houston is you've you've suffered two losses this week
4: and you leave with them just like just like in this book Mm -hmm. yeah this this book was a real gift to me this week um in the face of loss and grief in my own personal life to watch someone in a book go through grief and loss and to see how Barry describes it and I mean that's why we read books y'all that's what that's what books do for us is remind you that you're not alone. Right. So it was, it was very, very timely.
0: So I'm very glad that we have several weeks on this because we actually ran out of time and we didn't even get to the part where she's a mother yet. And I was like, really excited about that. So we're going to jump in on that. Um, but just finishing on this, this note of living in sorrow. Um, There's a, I'm I'm just going to read it, this section on page 51 in the paperback, um, where she says, looking back, you know, she's looking back and saying this, I began to know my story then, like everybody's, it was going to be the story of living in the absence of the dead. What is the thread that holds it all together? Grief, I thought for a while, and grief is there, sure enough, just about all the way through. From the time I was a girl, I have never been far from it. But grief is not a force and has no power to hold. You only bear it. Love is what carries you, for it is always there, even in the dark, or most in the dark, but shining out at times like golden stitches in a piece of embroidery. Sometimes, too, I could see that love is a great room with a lot of doors where we are invited to knock and come in though it contains all the world, the sun, moon, and stars, it is so small as to be also in our hearts. It is in the hearts of those who choose to come in. Some do not come in, some stay out forever. Some come in together and leave separately. Some come in and stay until they die and after. I was in it a long time with Nathan. I'm still in it with him. And what about Virgil? Once we two went in and were together in that room. And now in my tenderness of remembering it all again, I think I'm still there with him too. I'm there with all the others, most of them gone, but some who are still here who gave me love and called forth love from me. When I number them over, I am surprised how many there are. And so I have to say that another of the golden threads is gratitude. And we'll jump in next time with Hannah as a mom. So if you want to join in with us, we're going to be reading the second part of the story of Hannah's life as a mother. But until then, here's to home.